Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. There's a big change that's happening in the dynamics of creation right now. We're at an inflection point in the year. Things have been breaking apart, and now things are coming together. We're going from the three weeks in Tisha B'Av, we just did Shabbos Nachamu, and now everything is starting to gear toward Rosh Hashanah. And the creation of this new world, you see that reflected in the fact that this month Av means father. So that's a hint at Hashem. But it's also the first two letters of the Olive Bays. And that's a hint that God created the world with the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So you see this drive toward creation that's happening now in anticipation of Rosh Hashanah. Interestingly, Tishrei, which is the month of creation itself, Tishrei is spelled Taf, Shin, Resh, right? So in other words, it's starting with the last letter of the olive base, and then the second to last letter of the olive base, and then the third to last letter of the olive base. In other words, you see that when the creation actually kicks in itself, now it's going in reverse order. And the Kabbalists say that when God actually created the universe, he did it with the last letter of the olive base first. And if you think about this from the aspect of Tzimtzum, Tzimtzum is sort of like the compacting of divine light, compacting, 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 until it becomes something that is accessible to us. The example that I always like is, have you ever seen an electrical power plant? They're like one city block wide. They're, they're giant. They're absolutely giant. Why is it when I turn on the light switch in my kitchen, my entire building doesn't blow up? I mean, this is a real question. And the answer is because you have all of these steps that, that breaks it down, breaks it down, breaks it down, and makes it smaller and smaller and smaller. You might be asking yourself, why is God creating the universe with the last letter first, with Tuf and then Shin and then Resh? Again, Tishrei goes in the reverse order, and that actually is the month of creation. Why are we starting with the last letter? Well, I think, in my own understanding, the letter tough is 400. In other words, that's going to blow up the entire universe. And then Shin, you got to step it down. From 400, it goes down to 300. From 300, it goes to Resh to 200. Right? So each time, the energy is being compacted. And you see it in the letters, and you see it in the numbers as well. So let's get back to the month of Av. The month of Av is Olive Bays. Right, that spells father, and it's also the sequential aspect of the olive base. And that's coming before Tishrei. Tishrei is already the mechanics of the creation of the universe because God's got to compact his light. But before God compacts his light and starts actually making the universe, first the idea for the universe has to come up in God's mind. That's Av. That's the sequential aspect. 
Let me give you a further support for these ideas. You know, if I were to ask you just sort of like an emotional kind of litmus test, how do you feel when I say Adar? Probably you're going to say happy, right? And if I say to you, how do you feel when I say Av? You're going to be like, eh, you know, <laughs> like, not so much as they say, right? I always tell you that Reb Shlomo, when it came to Tishrei, he would talk about, he would say, there's the book of life and the book of not so much. He wouldn't, he, he wouldn't want to say the, the word. So, so anyway, when people think of Av, they think of not so much. But the Maharal says that the full moon of each month is the expression of the essence of that month. So Nisan is the month of miracles. The full moon of Nisan, the 15th of Nisan, is Pesach. That's when we left Egypt. And the Tsar says that all future redemptions are modeled after us leaving Egypt. So really you see the fullness of the month of miracles on the full moon of Nisan. That's Pesach night. Interestingly, Tishrei. What is the full moon of Tishrei? That's Sukkot. In other words, Tishrei. It's not ultimately about being judged. That's Rosh Hashanah. It's not even ultimately about being forgiven. That's Yom Kippur. Tishrei. It's ultimately about dwelling within God Besimcha. That's the 15th of the month of Tishrei. Showing that really the goal of creation is, and there's also just this aspect of bittel. It's, it's, it's translated as nullification. But bittel, for anyone who, who has a Hasidic soul, is actually a very beautiful concept. One of the dangers of reading books in English by very advanced Rebbe's and rabbis, like Rebbe Nachman, for instance, is he'll talk about bittel, he'll talk about the nullification of ego and things like that, and he's assuming that you're a, an advanced Torah scholar <laughs> when you're reading these things. What one has to have in mind whenever anyone is talking about bittel or nullification of ego is that the idea of positive self-esteem never goes away. That's assumed. You have to have a very positive feeling for yourself because you yourself are a piece of Hashem, right? God is within man. Man is not God. We'll say that again. A very important distinction here, like a, a world religion-changing distinction here. God is within man. Man is not God. And, you know, as I heard Rabbi Shimon Green say one time, if you went up to God at any moment and you asked him, how are you doing? He'd say, fantastic. <laughs> great. <laughs> I'm doing great. So this idea of bittel, of nullification, the beauty of it is that you've become just an aspect of the great oneness. That all of the things that are separating you have fallen away. That's bittel. But when you read it in an English book, it will talk about nullification of self or nullification of ego. 
which will send a completely different message to 99% of the readers, and they will fully misunderstand that. So again, you have to feel good about yourself, but feel good about yourself in that you are an emanation of the ultimate good. So again, the full moon of Sukkot, which is the essence of Tishrei, is this harmonious dwelling within Hashem, Besimcha, and this aspect of Bittel. The Kutzke Rebbe says something very, very interesting about the laws of sitting in a sukkah. If a person says, I am too hot, or I have a headache, they are putter, they are excused from sitting in the sukkah. So, he says, yeah, you, you know why you're excused? Because if it's I, 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 you're dwelling in the sukkah of your own ego. You're not sitting in God's sukkah. That's why you can leave. So the sukkah is really about getting rid of just all the eyes, right? And you're just there. So now let's get back to Av. All of this full moon discussion is just to tell you that, again, the Maharal says that the full moon of a month is the full expression of the spirituality of the month. So would it, would it surprise you if I were to tell you that the full moon of Av, you would think that Tishabav should be the full moon of Av, because Tishabav is the headquarter of sadness, and so since Av seemingly is a sad month, that that should be the full moon of Av. And yet it's the absolute opposite. Tuba Av is, the Gemara says, one of the two happiest days in the entire calendar. Yom Kippur being one, which surprises a lot of people when they first hear it. But the explanation is very clear. All of your sins are forgiven. Can you imagine, like, you know, all of a sudden American Express or Visa or MasterCard calls you and says, all of your debts are wiped away. <laughs> you, you owe nothing. You owe nothing. Your bank calls you. Oh, that loan you took out, it's done. It's all been paid for. Everything, like, so how much more so our own soul that it's been wiped clean. So yes, that's, this is a day of tremendous simcha, Yom Kippur. Now what about Tuba Av? That's the full moon of Av. Well, Tuba Av ultimately is all about connection. You know, famously, historically, the women of Israel would borrow white dresses from each other, which is very, very deep. And they would dance. And these were the, the women who were looking to make a match, who were looking to be married. And the men would come to this event and they would meet the, the different women there. Interestingly, it says, the first king of Israel, Shaul HaMelech, met his wife at one of these events. Isn't that interesting? By the way, I met my wife at a Jewish singles party. I didn't think I would ever meet anybody at a Jewish singles party, much less my wife. So the, these things actually happen. You actually do meet your spouse at these things. So anyway, by the way, it was Xmas Eve, the evening of December 24th. They, they threw a Jewish singles party in New York City. And it wasn't a matzah ball, but a lot of times they have parties that night and they call them matzah balls. 
So anyway, one of the beautiful things, one of the beautiful teachings is that, you know, everyone can be wearing a white dress, but right, this one is an Armani white dress. <laughs> this one is from TJ Maxx. Right? Like, you can say, well, everybody's the same. They're all wearing a white dress. But, you know, you look a little bit closer. This one has a really fine bit of tailoring to it. That one, not so much. So you can already get clues into, you know, what kind of family the person is from. So, you know, we were a little ahead of the curve there. Because the women would borrow dresses from each other which means that you couldn't make a snap judgment about the person. If you really want to make a match with someone, or if you want to just connect with a person on a deeper level, the very first rule that you have to have in mind is don't make a snap judgment, because you don't know. You don't know. So again, the women would borrow each other's dresses. And you know something? It's so deep, because white means purity. So, you could say, I live a really nice life, clean living, but you, I don't know. <laughs> and yet, the women were borrowing each other's dresses, which on a deeper level, a sign that you know something, your soul is pure, and I'm willing to wear your soul, because the outer garments are an expression of the inner self. And so that achdus among the women, that they were willing to put on each other's garments and that the other's garments were also white. That in itself is deep. Meaning to say, when you, when you judge someone else favorably, it will increase the odds that you yourself will be judged favorably. So Av is all about connection. And you see it most beautifully in in this event that would take place on Tuba Av. But I want to say deeper right now. I want to say that this connection, that you see it in the, the letters of the month of Av itself, that you see this marriage, this connection between the Aleph and the Bays of Av, which is the name of the month. In other words, let me, let me go deeper. You see, the Zohar says that the Torah is the blueprint of creation. So when you get to the first letter of the Torah, that's your entry point. So what does the letter Bayes tell us about where we exist? Well, it tells you quite a bit. There's a big announcement. The letter Bayes is a big announcement about this world that we live in, which is that there's a lot of brokenness in this world. Bayes is the number two, and two is already not one. If I have like one long stick and I break it in half, now I don't have one stick, now I have two sticks. Two is already a sign of brokenness. Or the illusion of multiplicity. The illusion that there's more than one power in this world. I've had the kavana at different times, at the end of Shemona Esrei, especially this time in the year, 
At the end of Shmon Esri, we say, so please God, if it's your will, rebuild the Holy Temple in Jerusalem, the Beis Migdash. But I want to read it slightly differently. Sheyibanei Beis. Please God, fix all of the bases, fix all the brokenness in the world, all the duality in the world, the good and the evil. Right? Reveal that there's only oneness. Sheyibanei Beis. Reconstruct the Beis. So the letter Beis, the first letter of the Torah, oddly, is already the number two. We begin with the number two. And Reb Shlomo has one of the great stories, one of his greatest stories, is called the Munkacher Passport. Right? Munkach is a city in Hungary. You can Google that. I won't even attempt to tell you the story because it's one of his greatest, greatest stories. You just Google Munkacher Passport and you can hear Reb Shlomo tell it. But basically what Reb Shlomo says is that if you look at every Gomorrah, every volume of the Talmud begins on page two. <laughs> That's very much by design. Now, why aren't you beginning on page one? Why is the world, so to speak, beginning with the letter Bayes? Because already God is telling you, you know something? There's what you can see with your eyes. And then there's beyond, 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 which goes before and is the foundation that your mind can't even fathom. And that's the Aleph. That's the Aleph. That's the oneness. The oneness that informs all the brokenness. Remember, the Ramban says it in his Hakdama, in his introduction to the Torah, that the Torah is black fire on white fire. So the Torah begins with a black fire base. And I want to say that before the black fire base, there's a white fire Aleph. That the Torah does begin with the letter Aleph, but it's a white fire Aleph. So on a deep level, we have this idea of the white fire Aleph and the black fire base of Av. In other words, the vision of creation is becoming manifest now. The white fire olive represents the infinite realms and now they're starting to fuse with the black fire bays, meaning to say we're watching creation starting to happen. We're watching the infinite become the finite. We're watching God's light become compacted into this realm. And that's the amazingness of this month. And it's the preparation, as we say, for Rosh Hashanah, which is around the corner. And you can just maybe begin to grasp it a little bit with your mind. One of the amazing things that we have every year, a great act of divine love and divine reassurance Following every Tisha B'Av, every single year, the calendar is like this, every single year, we always have God giving us 
the Luchos again, the, the Torah at Mount Sinai again. It's in two places in the Torah, most famously and in chronological order. It's in Sefer Shemos and Parshish Yisro. We leave Egypt, the sea splits, we get to Mount Sinai, and then you have the chapter of receiving the Torah. But in Sefer Devarim, in the last book of the Torah, when Moshe Rabbeinu recounts everything that's gone on, he then gets up to the part where he says, we got the Torah at Mount Sinai, and he tells over the giving of the Torah again. And that telling over again of the giving over of the Torah, every single year is immediately after Tisha B'Av, after our saddest day, the day of our historical disasters and trauma. Now, Reb Leibla Eger says something really amazing about why that's the case. Why is God giving us the Torah again after Tisha B'Av? And he says the following. When God gave us the Torah, the very first commandment is, Anochi Hashem Elokecha, I am God, your God. And then, when Moshe Rabbeinu saw that we were worshiping the golden calf, Moshe smashed the tablets. And Reb Leibla Eger says that the Jewish people had a spiritual crisis because they wondered, God who said, Anochi Hashem Elokecha, I am God, your God, now that the tablets are smashed, is God still our God? And then we do tshuva, we return back to God, and we get the, the second tablets. And the second tablet said exactly the same thing as the first tablets. And the second tablets begin with the words, Anochi Hashem Elokecha, I am God, your God. And so Reb Leibla Eger says that after Tisha B'av, after all of the trauma and disaster and murder that the Jewish people have experienced over the, not just the centuries, millennia, maybe in our hearts we're wondering, is God still our God? And so right after Tisha B'Av, every single year, God gives us the Torah again and he says, Anochi Hashem Elokecha, I am God your God, so that we should be reassured and know that God hasn't left us. God forbid. And all of us, on a personal level, in terms of the traumas that all of us have experienced in our own lives, we can wonder, is God still my God? Is God still with me? And so God is reassuring us again, saying, Anochi Hashem God is saying, I'm right here. And it's even more than that. It's not just that we get the, the Torah again every Shabbos after Tisha B'Av. But the word Shema Yisrael, Adonai Elohim, appear in the Parsha as well. Now we have to understand that, that God is one. That even though we can't understand how if God is good and God is absolutely good and this is the premise of Judaism is the goodness of God. If God is good, how can we experience suffering? Our minds can't compute that equation. But it's true. God is one and God is good. The ancients in their struggling to reconcile how good things can happen and how bad things can happen. Like the Zoroastrians posited two gods, a good God and a bad God. Other religions have God and the devil. And it's this epic battle between both of them. We say all that is garbage. 
garbage. All there is is one God. All there is is one God. So now I'll tell you something very, very strong. So, so here's the point. What happened to them? What happened to the Hittites and the Jezebites and the Girgashites <laughs> and all these ites? Right? What happened to all these peoples? And how could it be that the Jews who were contemporaries of all of them are around and none of them are around? None. And the question is why? And one answer is that the way things went in the ancient world, even until recently, is the following. One nation conquers another nation, and the nation that gets conquered has many gods, and they make the connection that the conquering nation, their gods must be stronger than our gods, so what are we hanging out with these loser gods for? Let's throw them out and take on the winning gods. And so what you see is through conquest, you have assimilation and all of the other gods are disappearing. Now, has there been a people that's been conquered more than us? <laughs> if we're not number one, we're, we're top five. You know, we're, we're, we've been conquered. When you view it through that lens, isn't it amazing that we never stepped away from Hashem? Isn't it amazing? Every other people ditched their God except us. Because we said God is the God of the entire universe. There's only one power. There's only one God. We don't say our God is stronger than your God. When we say, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad, we're not saying our God can beat your God up. We're saying there is only one God. There is no other God. There's only one God. But it's more than that. I want to say it's more than that. We understand that if God created the entire universe and keeps it going and is all powerful, if we lost some war, the problem is not with God. The problem is with us. And so we took responsibility. And we say we have to be better. That's a very sophisticated, it's a very sophisticated, I don't even know what, it, that's just very sophisticated. <laughs> Let's just leave it at that. Because someone who's immature will go, no, it's your fault, it's your fault. They're the quickest, easiest thing is to point fingers at everybody else. But to say that we have to improve. That's not to say, by the way, that, that there isn't evil in the world and that people have, have done things that they absolutely shouldn't have done. I'm not taking that away. But nonetheless, when everything bottomed out, we looked into ourselves. But I want to say something d even deeper, which is the following. I, I am not comfortable using the word proof 
because I think that God deliberately created the world in a way that he can't be proven. In other words, that's not a sign of God's weakness. A lot of people think they can't articulate this thought because it's too deep for them. But a lot of people in their hearts think, if God wants me to believe in him, let him show himself more. And if he can't show himself more, that means he's weak. And why should I believe in a weak God? I'm telling you, this is what's going on in a lot of people's minds, and they can't put it into words. It was God's idea from a place of all-powerfulness that he didn't want to allow himself to be proven. He wanted each person, through their own free choice, to arrive at his existence. A very important key to understanding this world and history and your life. So I'm not offering this as a proof, but it resonates in my personal heart in that way, okay? And that's the following. Why would we have stuck by Hashem after we've been conquered so many times? Why didn't we trade out Hashem for another God, for the conqueror's God, like everybody else did? And it's because we saw proof that God is God. We experienced in our lives and were eyewitnesses to the miracles and to Mount Sinai, the, re the revelation at Mount Sinai. We saw it in a way that it wasn't even a question in our minds. And when we had that direct experience, if we got conquered, it was our problem. It wasn't God's problem. And so I want to say that the fact that God is still our God is a very, very powerful demonstration that we experienced his power multiple, multiple, multiple times in a totally revealed way. Remember, I always mention it because I, I just think it's so astounding. Every other world religion has one prophet, and then that prophet would say to everyone else, trust me. Not so the Jewish people. God revealed himself at Mount Sinai to approximately two and a half million people at the same time who all heard and saw the same thing. No other religion would make that claim or has made that claim because it would be so easily disproven. It's a wild thing to say unless it's true and unless it happened. And our history proves that it happened. So I want to go deeper. Because as I told you, right after Tisha B'Av every single year, we have the revelation of the Torah at Mount Sinai. Now the Kamarno Rebbe says something absolutely unbelievable. I heard it from Reb Shlomo. He was one of the deepest, deepest Kabbalists. And the question is, what did God actually say at Mount Sinai? So the Gemara says that God said the first two commandments, and then the rest were given to Moshe Rabbeinu. Now, God spoke the first time according to this, and our souls flew out of our bodies. 
And one of the things that we saw when, the souls, when our souls flew out of our bodies was that the Torah exists not just in this dimension, but in the higher dimensions as well. Remember, the angels learn the Torah as well. In fact, the angels learn the Torah in a far out way because they try to stop Moshe Rabbeinu from getting the Torah because they say, the Torah is so holy, you're going to give it to the, 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 the products of flesh and blood? And Hashem says to Moshe Rabbeinu, debate the angels. And I remember the first time that I saw that, I was like, wow, I am about to learn the greatest thing that I ever learned in my entire life. Moshe debating the angels for the Torah. And what followed was so disappointing, I can't even tell you. <laughs> because Moshe says, do you work all week that you need a rest day, the seventh day? I was like, that's the best argument that you could come up with. And the angels are like, no. you know. And then Moshe says, do you have parents that you have to respect them? And the angels are like, no. And I was like, hey, get to the good part, you know? But basically, Moshe just runs down. But here's the genius of it. You ready? Moshe just runs down the simple, what we would call pshat, the simple definition of it. As we understand it in this dimension of time and space, but the angels exist in a higher dimension where that, those limitations don't exist. And so they're blowing their mind. You mean there's work? <laughs> there's rest? You got to pay rent? And then you sit around and eat? <laughs> and you are the products of physical beings who then come into this world? What? Every single thing that we take for granted is blowing the angels' minds. But you want to hear something interesting? None of those arguments convince them. Only one thing convinces them. And as soon as they hear this, the angels give the Torah to Moshe or relinquish, like agree that the human being should have the Torah. Moshe says to them, do you have a Yetzirah? And as soon as they hear that human beings have a Yetzirah, a, a force stopping them from, from keeping the Torah, that through their own free choice, they overcome in order to serve God, that human beings have this ability to struggle and then do the right thing. Sometimes we struggle and do the wrong thing. But then we come back and we struggle and we do the right thing. This, the angels were like, your service, human beings, is greater than our service. You take the Torah. We are the only creation in the entire universe that has to struggle. And from the angelic point of view, that struggle makes us the highest and the greatest. We, we look at ourselves and we say, you know, we have an internal conversation in our own heads and we say, what's the matter with me? Why, why is it so hard? Why can't I do the right thing? I'm trying to do this and I can't do that and I'm, I'm too lazy and I'm too this and I'm too that. And we think all the struggle that we experience is a sign of our own lowness. And it's the opposite. The fact that we're engaging in struggle and that we're struggling to do the right thing 
is a sign that not only are we great, but we're higher than the angels themselves. The Chovetz Chaim says that if a person begins to speak Lashon Hara, evil speech, and then stops themselves before they actually say the words, the angels gasp in envy. They gasp in envy of what a human being is able to accomplish in terms of his level of service to God. So, so God speaks the first commandment, our souls fly out of our bodies. God speaks the second commandment, our souls fly out of our bodies after he brings us back to life. And now they, we're floating again and God brings us back to life again using the dew that God will use to resurrect the dead by Tachias Amesim in the end of days. He borrows from that dew and he brings it here. And after that experience, we were like, Moshe, you get the rest of the Torah. Because we can't keep dying and coming back. This is like, you know, it's like, it's a little involved. You, you get the rest. But, but hear the following, because this I want you to really remember. Because a lot of people don't know this piece of information. It's a very important piece of information. When God gave over the rest of the Ten Commandments, at least, to Moshe Rabbeinu, we all heard what God said to Moshe. In other words, we were a nation of prophets. We were a nation of prophets. And we heard what God said to Moshe. And then when we heard Moshe say the exact words to us that God said to him, then it says we trusted Moshe for all time. It's a very important piece of information. Because there was no doubt in our mind that Moshe was this clear glass. That's what the sages say. He was a clear glass that 100%, without any alteration whatsoever, communicated the word of God. By the prophets, it says that the prophets were a cloudy glass. They also articulated the word of God. But they did it a little bit through their own historical context and a little bit through their own personality. It was still the word of God, but it had a little, a little bit of the individual in it, not in a negative way, not in an ego-driven way. But the unadulterated, absolute clarity of this is what God said, that clear glass component, component that was only Moshe. And that's why we say the Rambam brings that Moshe is the greatest prophet for all of history. Even Mashiach will not be a greater prophet than Moshe Rabbeinu. Mashiach will be greater in other ways, but not prophecy. Moshe remains the ultimate prophet for all time. Okay. So the Gemara says that God said the first two commandments at Mount Sinai. And Moshe said over the rest. We told Moshe, we believe in God. We believe that you are a faithful transmitter of God's word. And you get the other commandments and say them over to us. Very good. Interestingly, we know that there's 613 commandments in the Torah. How does the Gomorrah arrive at that number, 613? Because they say, Rav Samlai says that there are, God said the first two commandments. 
And the gematria of the word Torah is 611. So 611 plus 2 is 613. And believe it or not, that is the source in the Talmud for how there's 613 commandments. I'll tell you something crazy from my, my own life. My, my, my first child, he was probably three or four, and I had a poster of an airplane, like, a, like an old poster of an airplane, like one of those like biplanes, early airplanes on his wall. And there was a number on the, on the airplane, 161. And he's jumping up and down on the bed, and he's touching the airplane when he jumps up, and then he's kissing his hand when he jumps back down. In the way that you would kiss the Torah, right? So I said to him, I said, Moshe, that's, that's not the Torah. And he says, he says, yes, it is. <laughs> and then I looked at the number. And I realized 161 is the, also the number is 611, which is the gematria of Torah. <laughs> now, could he have known that? I, I don't think so. I don't think that's possible, but it was interesting. <laughs> it was interesting. Okay, so, so one opinion is that God gave the first two commandments. And that's what he said over, and Moshe said the rest. But I heard Reb Shlomo say that the deeper thinkers say that Hashem just said the word Anochi, I am. And everything was contained within the words I am. Anochi. And now we get back to the Kamarno Rebbe. This is one of the most precious things I know. According to him, God just pronounced the Aleph of the word Anochi. Now the letter Aleph is silent. So how do you pronounce the letter Aleph? And that everything was contained within is pronouncing the letter Aleph. Now I've learned more things about the Aleph and I want to go deeper into that right now. The letter Aleph famously, everybody knows, is composed of three letters, a Yud, a Vav, and another Yud. And by the way, the Vav, that, that diagonal Vav represents the Rakia the dividing line between the spiritual realms and the physical realms. That's the Vav. The Yud on top is the number 10. That represents the Torah in Shemayim. And the Yud on the bottom represents the Torah as it's revealed in this physical universe. So the letter Aleph in that way is a map of the universe. Now, of course, those three letters, Yud, Vav, and Yud, add up to 26. Yud is 10, Vav is 6. 10, 10, and 6 is 26, which is the gematria of God's holiest name, the Yud, K, Vav, K, which is to say that everything exists within the oneness of God. Remember, the letter Aleph is the number one. There's another way, Kabbalistically, to write the letter Aleph which is the letter Yud. And then instead of one Vav, we have two Vavs. And they're parallel lines to each other. 
and then a bottom yud. Remember, the way that you actually spell the, word, the letter vav, or one way, is to spell it vav-vav. So you have vav and vav, which is the spelling of the letter vav. That in itself is very, very deep. And that now adds up to two yuds and two vavs now adds up to 32. Now, Rabbi Yitzhak Isaac Haver says something amazing. Remember, the Komarno Rebbe says that God just said the letter Aleph and that the entire Torah was contained within the letter Aleph. Listen to what Rabbi Yitzhak Isaac Haver says. The first letter of the Torah is the letter Bez. The last letter of the Torah is the letter Lamed. And that adds up to 32. When you spell the letter Aleph, which is what God pronounced at Mount Sinai, it contains the entirety of the Torah from the first letter to the last letter of the Torah. Is all within the letter Aleph. Not only that, but the number 32, when you spell Aleph that way, is the gematria for the word lave or heart. Now the Zohar says that God, the Torah, and the Jewish people are one. So you see God is one. You see that that oneness of the Torah is contained within the Aleph. And the Jewish people are one because that's the gematria of Lev. It's in our heart. But we also see how the Jewish people are in the letter Aleph as well. And this is something that came to me. You know, we say, Avraham, Yitzchak, Vav Yaakov. So now let's look at the letter Aleph. The letter Aleph stands for Avraham. The upper Yud stands for Yitzchak. V Yaakov. <laughs> the letter Vav. And then the lower Yud is Yaakov. Do you see how in the letter Aleph it contains the whole Jewish people? Avraham is the Aleph. The upper Yud is Yitzchak. V Yaakov is the lower Yud. But I want to go deeper. If you spell the letter Aleph, it's Aleph, Lamed, Fe, which adds up to 111, which is 111. The Rishonah Rebbe says 111. There you see God, the Torah, and the Jewish people are all one. It's all contained within the letter Aleph. And now let's go deeper still. All there is is one. Because all of reality is made out of the energy of the letters. And when you spell each letter, it breaks down further and further and further until you can actually weave between the particles of reality. <laughs> and you realize that there is nothing without significance and that everything counts. Everything counts. And everything has meaning. I was once in the old city in Yerushalayim, in Jerusalem, on Shfus, and I was with Rabbi Shimon Green at Birkas HaTorah many years ago. And the yeshiva had stayed up all night learning Torah, and there's a minig, a custom to go to the mikvah, the men to go to the mikvah at dawn, Shfus, Shfus morning. And I didn't time it right, and there was a big crowd in the old city at the mikvah there, and it was just, it was clear to me that I wasn't going to be able to go to the mikveh 
and then still make it back in time for the beginning of the, of the prayers. And so I was like rattled. And so I went up to Rabbi Green and I said, Rabbi Green, you know, I didn't, I didn't time it right and I want to be able to do the mikvah before dawn, but, and then I said, I went before, I went before Yantif, I went to the mikvah before Yantif started. And he said to me, you, you went to the mikvah before, before Yantif started? And I said, yeah. He said, you went, you went to the mikvah before Shavuos? I said, yeah. He said, you really? You went to the mikvah before Shavuos started? I said, yeah, is that the same thing? He says, no. <laughs> but he made me feel so good. <laughs> Here I had done something right, but I had forgotten about it. It had become meaningless to me because I already did it. It's in the past. Like. And he made me feel so good about something that I had done that I wasn't ascribing any importance to. So you're sitting around and you're saying, what did I accomplish today? What did I do? I did nothing. Did you say hello to another person? <laughs> you know, when you say hello to another person, you bring them into reality. <laughs> they realize, wow, I exist. You know how many people are just waiting for someone to say hello to them? Okay, we'll stop here. What follows now are some questions and answers. Okay, you're saying something that played a big role in terms of my own spiritual journey. A lot of people hear a teaching from the Torah, especially some of the more encoded teachings, because our sages encoded a lot of teachings. There's a whole metaphorical language that many people who study Torah for many, many years they're really concentrated on, I heard my cousin refer to them as the Babas, right? That's Baba Kama, Baba Metzia, Baba Basra, things like that. For whatever reason, just because of my own upbringing, I didn't go that path. I have spent all of my years of study, like 30 plus years of daily study. I have touched on some of those things, but for the most part, I went into Agadita, which is another arm of the Torah. And just trying to dwell within the symbolic language of the rabbis and try to understand what it is that they're actually communicating according to our holiest sources, right? So that's just kind of my, you know, we all have our paths. That's kind of the path in Torah that I went down. And so when a lot of people hear teachings that don't really make sense to them, they say just almost as in a reactive way with a, maybe a tinge of anger even, that's so stupid. That makes no sense, right? There's something like very reactive and almost physicalized in terms of their anger a bit. And so what I challenged myself to say early on since I was one of those people was to, to, re, to reframe it and to say, I clearly don't understand it. And then when I started doing that, I opened myself to worlds and worlds and worlds and dimensions of new understanding. Because when we nod yes, I'm talking about Anglos, when Anglos nod, they nod up and down, north to south. Do you know in India, when they agree with you, they shake their head east to west. <laughs> 
I don't know if you know that, but I've seen that. It's very, it's very off-putting, as in Angla. You know, because they're shaking their head, which is like, usually, like, you have to really strongly disagree with someone if you're, like, actively shaking your head back and forth. Like, that's almost an aggressive thing to do to someone from a Western country. And that's how they say yes. So can you imagine how different that is? Now, now that's just one way of communicating yes and no, which is so fundamental, and that exists today. Can you imagine when it comes to expressing deep ideas 3,000 years ago? They're going to be using a very different form of communicating. And so the Torah has a lot of this language of communicating, which is very ancient. But it's been deciphered over the years by our greatest sages. And if you learn their Torah, then you're able to actually be part of the conversation that our greatest minds and souls have had in terms of conveying information about the, this world, about reality, about our life, about our mission, about the next world. But you have to understand the way they speak. So just on a very practical level, if you don't understand something and it's a Torah true teaching, Please don't dismiss it. Even if you don't look into it further, at least say to yourself, I clearly don't understand. A book that I would highly, highly recommend everyone read is called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. This is a game-changing book. It's very thin and it's very easy to read. He's the one who pioneered the phrase paradigm shift. Science develops in a certain way and then all of a sudden, someone realizes a bigger, much better idea, and all of the work of those previous generations in that field gets thrown out. Okay? What is amazing about Torah, what's amazing about Torah, is that our paradigm never shifted, which means that unlike any other intellectual discipline or spiritual discipline in history, including halacha, we have 3,000 continuous years of genius on top of genius on top of genius on top of genius, including the works of prophets. This is amazing. This is unique in world civilization. It's unique. But in terms of measurements, no one measured the skies like the Jewish people. When it came to the order of new months and the phases of the moon and calendar years, no one came close to the accuracy of the Jewish people. And Ptolemy, who is one of the great ancient kings, not Jewish, and they were all about the measurements, and they were experts, expert, expert, experts in the measurements, he himself testified that it's a sign of the divinity of the Jewish people that our numbers are the greatest, most accurate numbers in terms of the measurements of the skies and that they could not have been derived except through prophecy. And to this day, our calculations from the ancient times hold up. 
And this is one of the wondrous things. It's a whole field of study. If you want to Google it and get into it, you'll see it's like, I can't even quote you the numbers, but 0.0000% accurate to this day because it was derived through prophecy. That level of detail and exactitude we are incapable of arriving at through our intellect alone. Thanks for listening. We do this every week, so join in again next Sunday for a new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.